Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, church. It's such a joy to be here, and trust me, standing here and looking at all these lovely faces, it looks like we are in a different world today. And I really thank the Lord for for all those who are here today and those who are watching online. Uh, It's been a wonderful journey, and I really thank the Lord for opening the doors for us so we can meet in in person. We are social beings, isn't it? We need each other. We need to touch each other, feel each other. That's how we are, we are wired. So nice to see everybody from different parts of uh, this region. Thank you. As you know that we are doing a series from the book of Colossians, and I call it the Tour de Colossians because I, I really feel that we are just going on a tour. We are just finding and navigating and finding our way through that. And I'm really excited uh, for what we are going to learn today or look at today. We are in chapter 2, verses 16 to 19 is what you're going to look at. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. But let me remind you, uh, everyone, so that we we can just travel together. Now, as you come to chapter 2, it's all about uh, Paul is giving a warning about spiritual deception. That's what you're seeing there. Started off with that introduction, and then he talks about uh, about philosophy and about ceremonialism. That's what he looked at last time. Now today, as we dive into verses 16 to 19, Paul is addressing the saints in Colossae to be careful about the heretical teaching on legalism. And another word is mysticism, because it talks about the worship of angels. But I want to call that as legalism. So, beg your pardon, Andrew, can I have the clicker, please? Sorry. Apologize. Okay, now, as we look at this this, uh, passage of Scripture, I want to give you the big picture. Um, There are two commands that we see in this. Verse number 16, it says, let no one judge you. That's what you're seeing here. I'm, mine is from New King James Version, so it may be different from the ESVs that most of you have. Let no one judge you. We are going to dive into that in a minute. And then in verse 18, it says, let no one cheat you of your reward. Or in the ESV translation, it says, let no one disqualify you, finding you not worthy, not suitable for the award. See, in other words, Paul is saying we, the believers, must strongly reject legalism as a way of Christian living. That's what they are taking from this. Now, these false teachers had set themselves up as judges to say that anyone who didn't follow their rules, they were not spiritual. That's what they're saying. They have man-made rules. They have interpreted the Scriptures in such a way, and they say, if they are not following that, you are not spiritual. 
So what are these rules, you may ask? Let's look at verse number 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. So these are some of the Old Testament dietary regulations, such as in food and in drink, as well as certain festivals, Jewish festivals. When you look at the word festival, it refers to the annual Jewish feasts, such as Passovers. A new moon refers to the monthly celebrations, and Sabbaths refer to the weekly observance of the seventh day. So church, is important for us to understand what legalism is before we go into this study. Some think that legalism means having rules or commandments. But church, the New Testament, if you really go through that, is full of rules and commandments. In fact, Jesus himself has said, if, you, if we love him, we will obey what? His commandments. So the scripture talks about rules and commandments, So what is legalism? We know that to live a godly life, we need to follow some strict behavior which are man-made. We need some rules in order to function as a Christian family or a Christian church. And in every home, there are rules and commandments. That is not legalism. So what is legalism? The heart of legalism is an attitude of pride. The heart of legalism is an attitude of pride. The legalists think that he is made acceptable to God either for salvation or spirituality by his conformity to certain rules that he picks and chooses. These rules are not like loving the Lord with all your heart and with all your mind and all your soul or loving your neighbor as you love love yourselves. The legalist picks rules what he is able to keep and conveniently neglects or ignores the things that he's not able to keep. The legalist often focuses on the external conformity and neglecting the heart of righteousness that God requires. Now we know the Lord calls them hypocrites. And we see that in in Matthew uh, chapter 23, this is how, the, how Jesus calls these legalists. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Then he goes on to say, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So these heretics in Colossae are injecting legalism and mysticism along with other philosophy and ceremonialism that we looked at as a means of earning God's favor. Church, I want you to examine yourself and see what you think might earn God's favor in your... Am I doing something wrong here? In your point of view, in your understanding, what would earn God's favor? Because unless we ask that question and try to find an answer for that, this will be only an academic exercise. We are looking for spiritual transformation. 
Let the word do its work in, his, in your lives. So Paul is addressing this very issue here. So I like to take a moment to examine some of the dangers of legalism from Paul's warning to this church. So as we go through this, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I relate to this in any way or form? So the firstly, legalism promotes unbiblical standards. Let me repeat that to you. Legalism promotes unbiblical standards. It becomes self-authority. Listen, church. Legalism may take things that have been biblically true, such as food, drink, and festivals, etc., that Paul is writing here, but not biblically applicable and attempt, them, attempt to make them binding. That's what legalism is. But we know that as believers, we are already complete in Christ. That's what we have been studying. In Him. The word in Him is what you find in the book of Colossians over and over again. We lack nothing in Him. God has given us everything we need in Christ. So to elevate any other standard outside the work of Jesus Christ is to promote an unbiblical standard. That's what it is, church. It is to make a law that is not binding. It may be, so let us narrow it down to our day-to-day -day living. It may be what you eat or drink. Don't touch this. It's bad. Because this is how it has been in the Old Testament. What you do on Sundays, what, what you wear for clothes, what kind of music you listen, what TV movies that you watch, whether you have piercings and tattoos or wear a suit on a Sunday or, or you don't, or you do homeschooling or not. It is to take something that cannot bring or keep your favor with God and make it binding on yourself and others. Certainly we need to flee from the judgmental, legalistic, work for salvation mentality, church. This is so dangerous, but it is so common. On the other hand, yes, we do have freedom in Christ. But we have to understand, on the other hand, if you are not careful, we would say that grace actually excuses the sin we want to practice, and that we have freedom to live as we please. Listen, church, while we shouldn't obey God out of fear or to earn His love or favor, we should obey God out of faith. We should obey God out of love for God. That's what we should obey God for. Spurgeon said this, the more of faith in Him you have, the more of obedience to Him you will manifest. I love the statement. The more of faith in Him you have, the more of obedience to Him will you manifest. In reality, our faith should be what drives us to holy living. So whatever we may choose to do, here's what the scripture says. For a true believer, he or she must be living a blameless life. A blameless life, above reproach. Whatever we do, we must do, we must avoid all appearance of evil. That is a passage of scripture that convicts me over and over again. It's not evil, the appearance of evil. It says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, 22, it says, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every 
form of evil. I like the King James Version. It says this, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all, read the word, appearance of evil. It's not talking about evil, appearance of evil. Yes, we cannot be legalistic about what I eat and what I drink and what I wear and what I do on a Sunday. But here's a pH test for you. The questions that you need to ask yourself. Does this present me as blameless and above reproach? Does that please the Lord? Does my motive glorify God? Does that cause someone to stumble? Does this avoid all appearance of evil? Am I giving room for any new believer to question the good news of the gospel? There are two scriptures that came to my mind as I was preparing this message. Is Paul's writing to the saints in Corinth. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things, are, all things edify. And another passage, he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So church, let us echo Paul and ask this question every time. How is this behavior of mine bring glory to God? How will this edify others? If there is an iota of doubt, then don't do it. If it is a clear truth, you will never question it. We all know that gravity pulls, we don't have to question it. Because that's an absolute truth, we know that, we have experienced it. So as a rule of thumb, if there is a doubt in whatever that you are doing, most likely it is not pleasing to the Lord. So that's my first point. The secondly, legalism promotes performance. Legalism promotes performance. Now, legalism, in addition to promoting unbiblical standards, it promotes personal performance, such as what we do on Sabbath and festivals. That's what Paul is talking about here. Legalism says, I do and I do not do. But the gospel says, I can't do, but Jesus did. That's the difference. Legalism says, I can do it. I do, and I don't do this. But the gospel says, I can't do anything, but Jesus did. There's a big difference, church. Legalism promotes the earning and keeping of God's pleasure based on what I do and what I do not do. You're always trying to cut a deal with God or your conscience. You feel guilty about what you have done or not done. Instead of running to Christ, you're running to Mount Sinai. You're running to the law and you are trying to see, what can I do here? That's what legalism does. Oh my goodness, I cheated the tax guy. Let me give some money to church to balance it off. Yeah, I miss church on Sunday. Let me watch something on TV so that I cover the, my portion of the responsibility. Oh, I spend more money on parties and alcohol and tobacco. And Let me give some charity to offset this. Church, Legalism is a relentless taskmaster that promotes your personal performance as your continuing personal atonement. So that's the second one. The third thing, the legalism promotes division amongst believers. 
As you read through the Galatians, you would notice the connection between legalism and strife. What you learn is that with the absence of the gospel, you have the presence of strife. Even in the Colossians church, the heretics try to divide by judging them on what they do. That's what they're learning here. Why is this? It is because legalism is a system that thrives on personal performance. Personal supremacy and sadly, the trembling of others. It squashes grace, mercy and humility. Legalism believes the prize is won through the personal efforts and sees anyone in the way of the prize not as people to be served but as obstacles to be removed. So what do you do in a church? You see everyone else as an obstacle, not as someone to serve. You know, I know that Black Friday, Boxing Day, Thanksgiving, what comes to your mind? Sale, of course. And what do you do? There's a big lineup of people. The moment the doors are open, everybody's running for the price. Are they worried about the person standing next? Absolutely not. Let me go there. That's what legalism does. This is the way legalism functions. It's an environment of competition. We cut others down, biting and devouring one another in pursuit of our prize. We falsely think that the competition is between us and other people. So we set up rules and tear down others and judging and defrauding one another. I must be superior to the other in serving. I need to exceed in his or her contribution. The Lord is not looking at, your, at the results. You know, this is the most comforting thing for me as a, as, a, as, a, as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, to know that the Lord is not looking at my results. What is the Lord looking for? He is looking at my faithfulness. Because the battle belongs to him, the victory is his, not mine. You remember the widow with two mites or two coins? What did she contribute? This is what the Lord said, Jesus said. Assuredly, I say to you, he called the disciples and he said this, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Your faithfulness is what he's looking for. So this is not between us and others, but between us and God. No church, no amount of physical exertion on our part can bring us on the coveted place of divine favor. It's only through Christ and Christ alone. So what we have looked at so far is that we have to reject legalism. Why? Because it promotes unbiblical standards. It promotes self-righteousness. It promotes division. And the fourth thing is that legalism demotes Jesus. Legalism demotes Jesus. That's what he's seeing in this passage. And that this is really, at its core, the offense of legalism. Look at this. The shadow takes prominence. The shadow takes prominence. If you say that you can merit God's favor outside of the work of Christ, in essence you are saying that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus either was not necessary or was not sufficient. That's what you are saying. To cling to personal merit through doing things however good or biblical they may seem, is to demote Jesus from his place of supremacy. 
So legalism is a dangerous system. One theologian put it this way. In it, the sheep are hurt. The gospel is veiled. Christ is marginalized. And we are exalted. I love the way you put it. Let me repeat that. In it, the sheep are hurt. When you, when you adopt legalism, the gospel is veiled. Christ is marginalized and we are exalted. That is why Paul finds himself agonizing with sweaty earnestness for the church in Colossae. Paul is telling these new believers what legalism is. Look at verse 17 now. I think I've hit more than what I should. Okay. Verse number 17. He talks about some, so let no one judge you in food or drink. And then he goes on to say, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. What is Paul saying here in verse 17? The law was merely the shadow which pointed toward the reality which is Christ. Christ fulfilled the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. We don't grow as Christians by keeping those laws, but by holding fast to Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. So Paul, so far he's saying you need to reject legalism. Why? Because it promotes unbiblical standards, it promotes self-righteousness, it promotes division, it demotes Christ. Let's move on to verse number 18. Paul tells them that the legalism, listen church, it stems from and leads to pride. Let's look at verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which has been seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. There are a few key things Paul spells out in this passage. So basically, Paul spells out the outcome of false humility. That's what, he's, what we're seeing in this passage. Firstly, he says, look at that, let no one cheat you of your reward. Paul was using an athletic metaphor here, saying that these false teachers set themselves as judges, making up their own rules. If you didn't play to their rules, they disqualify you from the contest. They may say that you are not saved, have you heard that? You don't demonstrate all these things, you are not saved. Or at the very least, they will say that you lost your rewards in heaven. Look at the next one. Taking delight in false humility. Here Paul probably is being sarcastic, saying that these false teachers take pride in their humility. They are humble people, but they, are, they take pride in their humility. He may be referring to their ascetic practices of denying themselves certain things which the Bible does not forbid. They took pride in keeping their dietary rules and, and, and in the observations of these religious special days. And they judged others who did not comply. Thirdly, we look at this. Worship of angels. Invoking angels for help and protection from evil spirit, they are virtually worshipping angels. They may have used false humility even here and saying that I am not qualified enough to go to God. I am going to go to Him through angels. 
They are going to stand in the gap for us. So by doing so, they set aside Christ's sufficiency as our mediator. And fourthly, here's a very important point, intruding into those things which he has not seen. I love the ESV translation. It says, going on in detail about visions. These heretics, church, listen carefully, base their worship of the angels on visions that they claim to have seen. We are treading into a very important area right now. And obviously, they were inflated with pride over their visions. Paul says that they were just boasting in the flesh. We used to go to, we used to have a camp during the August weekend, long weekend. It's called the Deeper Life Camp. We have been doing it for nearly 25, 30 years. I used to go there very religiously every time. And there comes a lady from Toronto, an elderly lady. And the moment she's, every time she sees me, I mean, she likes me, she prays with me. But every time she comes and say, Pastor, I had a vision. So the first time I stood with her and I was listening to what she was saying. Then the very next day she'll come, Pastor, I had a vision. So after a while you know that, you know, where is this vision going? So how do you question someone when he or she says, the Lord spoke to me? How do you question someone when they say, I had a vision? Is it wrong to say someone had a vision? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to say that God spoke to a person? Absolutely not. But how do you know that is true? That's a very genuine question to ask. How do you test it? Here's what you do, church. You must compare the content of the dream or the vision and its message to the scriptures. That's the only test. If anything seems to contradict God's words on its nature, it is wise to disregard the dream even if it comes true. Even if it comes true. Because God will never go against His word. The Bible is our standard for truth and revelation that God has given. And if we lack wisdom, the Bible says we can ask for wisdom. God will give it to us. You know, the true humility, if you want to understand, you can see from Apostle Paul, he had a vision. You go home, you read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, chapter 12, excuse me, it talks about his vision. But do you know that when Paul was caught up to heaven and he had this vision, he didn't tell anyone about it for 14 years. He did not write a book. He did not go on the talk show and, and, and made a big, big do about it. Instead, God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. God gave a vision. God put a thorn in the flesh. This is what he says. Paul writes, because of the surpassingly great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, becoming proud, to boast about things, I was given a thorn in my flesh. But the heretics were not doing that. They were very proud about the visions. And you can see Apostle Paul. So church, a true revelation from God will bring true humility in you. 
So what do we learn from this so far? Legalists don't seek to exalt God. They exalt themselves. Legalists operate in the flesh, not the spirit. They take pride in external conformity, which can be judged outwardly. They are proud about their own humility. By the way of contrast, godly people or true saints become increasingly aware of their inclination to sin. Each passing day, the more, you, the more closer you come to the Lord, aware you become about, your, about yourself, about your weaknesses, about your sins. You become more dependent on God. That is the true mark of true humility. So, so far we looked at Paul is telling the saints there to reject legalism. Why? Because legalism promotes unbiblical standards. Because legalism promotes self-righteousness. Legalism promotes division. Legalism demotes Christ. Legalism promotes false humility. So Paul, after saying this, this leads me to the last verse, verse 19. Let's look at that now. Paul is saying, and not holding fast to the head, talking about the heretics, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So there's another implication here, church. I am stating positively what Paul expresses negatively about the false teachers. I want you to understand that. So in essence, what Paul is saying here in verse 19, Christians, that we believers, must hold on to Christ as the head of his body, the church. That's what Paul is saying here. Through Colossians, Paul, Paul has shown the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. He has already stated, we read it in chapter 1, verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. So here in verse 19, Paul says, holding fast to Christ as the head is the key to the growth which is from God. It grows with the increase that is from God. You have to hold fast to Christ. So in this passage, it implies four things. Holding fast to Christ as the head means submitting to him as Lord. That's the first thing. This implied in the idea of the head. The head controls the body, right? You have no head, there's no body. Your body isn't responsive to the direction of your head. If it doesn't respond to that, you have got a big problem. The fact that Jesus is the head of this body, the church, means that he is the Lord of the church. He gives the orders and we must submit to him. It's an implicit obedience. That's what it's called. If you want to consider him as your head, just do it. Think of Nike. That comes applicable here. That's what Paul is saying. Secondly, holding fast to Christ as head means not being captivated with things other than Christ. Because these false teachers were caught up with the shadow. That's what he looked at, isn't it? But they were ignoring the reality. They were into all sorts of rules, but they weren't into Christ. What should matter most to us is Christ and Christ alone. Church, it would be admiring if you, if, if you admire some famous person, and when you meet that person, 
instead of looking at him, we fall down and look at his shadow and we tell, oh, look at this shadow. That's what these people are doing. The person is standing right there, but they are looking at the shadow. That is what the false teachers were doing here. They were so caught up with the ceremonial aspects of the law that they missed the one to whom these ceremonies and laws pointed. They were hugging his shadow, but missing Christ himself. Church, I don't want you to laugh at this. You know why? Because we do the same. Let me explain to you. It can be in our worship. I'm not seeing our worship team is doing it. But it can be in our worship. It's easy to slip into a worship-centered church rather than a God-centered church. It's easy. We hug the shadow of various styles of worship. We look around from the, east to, from the west to the east, north to the south, and seeing other churches, and we can copy it down and see that's the best way to do it. It can be a worship-centered church, but it may not be a God-centered church. We can forget that we are supposed to be exhorting the head of the church who gave himself for us on the cross. So it can be in our worship. It can be in our prayers. We may, we may want to be very eloquent in our prayers, in the choice of our vocabulary. I know there are some people who are very reluctant to pray because they may not get the right vocabulary. There is no need for vocabulary for you to talk to your mom and dad, to talk to your children. You don't go through dictionary and see what words should I use. You just spit out. This is your heavenly father. Spit out whatever you want to say. He sees your heart. We may impress others, church, by using some high-flown vocabulary. I'm not against that. But I just want us to know this. But we may not impact God if our heart is not in the right place. It could be a ritualistic, repetitive play. Coming from your head and not from the heart. Running through the mundane tasks of, to wrap up for the sake of it. Oh, I got to pray. So it can be worship, it can be prayers, it can be in our Bible studies. We get caught up with the Bible knowledge, which is a good thing if used properly. But if we get puffed up with pride over being right or understanding truths that others don't get, oh, I figured it out, I know it all. So we use the scripture to exalt ourselves. But we have forgotten that scriptures exalt Jesus. So we are hugging the shadow, but not holding fast to the head. So to grow as Christian, hold fast in love to the Lord Jesus. Church, study the scriptures, but not so, so that you can boast in your knowledge, but so that you can grow in your love for the Savior. God didn't give us Bible to fill our heads with information. He gave it to us so that we would come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and to eagerly wait for His coming as our bridegroom. Don't get charmed with things other than Christ. You know, you, have, you know this passage, but I just want to bring it up so that we understand it. It says in Jeremiah, the Lord spoke, to, spoke through prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom. Let none of us boast of our knowledge of the scriptures. Uh, there's room in the front here, brother. There's room in the front, please come. 
let us not boast of the knowledge of the Bible. But here's what he says, verse 24, but let the one who boasts, boast about this, about what? That they have the understanding to know me. You might know the scriptures and you may be exalted, you may be exalting yourself, exalting yourself, but you are missing Christ. We should boast in knowing him personally. Thirdly, holding fast to Christ as head means maintaining a living union with him. When you have a head, the members of the body must be joined to the head in a living way. Imagine if your arm is only taped to your body. Some of us are like that. We are taped to Christ. We are not joined. There must be a living, organic union. Otherwise, the limb will be useless. Being a Christian is more than attending church, more than going through the outward motions of Christianity, more than keeping some religious rules. It means being joined to Christ Jesus in a living way that you are in Him. You don't just join a church, you are joined to Christ Himself as the body. We must hold Him fast. So not only holding Him fast, finally... Holding fast to Christ as means, here, this is what he says as you look at this passage. From whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments. So not only knit together with the head, but knit together with other parts. So being a part of this functioning, growing body of the church. So verse 19 makes it clear that being a Christian is not an individual matter. Being a Christian means being a functioning member of the Christ body. It requires dependency on the, on the head, I, looked, I spoke about that, but interdependency with other members here. But sadly, today, and especially, I, would, I can say, in North America, we have a very independent view of life in general and of Christian life. It's God and me but not me and my brothers and sisters in Christ. There is, this is reflected in the attitude. You know, what's the term that you, that you use? We attend church. Have you heard the term? Did you attend church? It's as something like we are attending a movie. You go to a movie, you aren't closely involved with the other attendees. You walk into the theater, you see the others, you smile at them, you say hi, and you buy. And you sit there, watch, you attend, and then you leave. You aren't involved with any believers. You aren't involved with the others who came to watch the movie until you attend the next Sunday. And then you come next Sunday and you pick up from where you left the previous Sunday. But church, that's not the New Testament Christianity. For the church to grow with a growth from God, which can protect this deception from the devil, we must hold fast to the head and we must closely join to other members of the body. That's what Paul is saying here. 
Just as the joints and ligaments hold our body, physical bodies together, growing with a growth from God means being a functioning part of the body. God has designed a spiritual growth to take place. So my question to you is, how joined are you in the church? How often do you connect with each other outside of a Sunday gathering? Church, not every one of us are at the same mature level, spiritually. We come to church, we hear the word being preached, we are encouraged, we are motivated, and once we leave the sanctuary, when we go out, we are entering into enemy territory, and here's the enemy throwing darts at you, just like the way that threw darts in the church in Colossae, with all deceptive thoughts, legalism, ceremonialism, philosophy, and the list can go on. And you're all by yourself is a solitary battle that you're fighting. And you see your brother only next Sunday. How do you cope up with these seven days of gap in between? That's why we must be joined together. That's why every one of you must pick up a phone and at least call someone else and ask during the week, brother, how are you doing? Sister, how are you doing? That's what Paul is saying. You have to be knit together. Otherwise, the deceptive schemes of the devil will come to pass. So in conclusion, church, we need to reject legalism. But we need to join with Jesus Christ, his body and the church. If you sense that you are not growing as a, as a Christian, it may be that either you are not rejecting legalism as a way of Christian living, or you are not holding fast to Christ as the head of his body. Paul exhorts the saint to reject legalism and to receive Christ. So that's what you're seeing in this passage here. Reject legalism. Why? Because it promotes unbiblical standards. It promotes self-righteousness. It promotes division. It demotes Christ. It promotes false humility. And you have to receive Christ. We have to submit to him as Lord. We have to reject all other things. We have to maintain a living union with Christ. We must belong to a growing body of Christ. Just two concluding applications. I just want to leave that for your thoughts. Please, church. Don't mistake liberty for license. Just because we're talking about legalism, but do not mistake liberty for license. Rejecting legalism doesn't mean hang loose and undisciplined life. I told you the question that you need to ask is that, am I, am I avoiding all appearance of evil? Being free in Christ doesn't mean your freedom in sin. Freedom to sin, but... Freedom from sin. Remember, you are called to live a life avoiding all appearance of evil, above reproach and blameless. And the last, uh, the second point I want to leave with you is that don't replace reality with rules. Some advocate living the Christian's life by vows and rules. They say you need to read your Bible and pray and uh, uh, for so many minutes each day. What I highly recommend you do it not out of compulsion, you do it out of conviction. Because you love the Lord. Because out of faith, as we looked at before. So may your love be organic. Dependency with God. 
and interdependency with each other. That way, we can avoid the deceptive schemes of the devil.